0: Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic.
1: Hey
0: everyone, welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt Podcast presented by Onyx. So the Onyx Hunt app is basically a hunting GPS map that's made for hunters by hunters where there's 985 million acres of public land over 400 map overlays and just keeps continuing over 9,000 unique hunting units and a whole bunch of other stuff including being able to track and record your trip being able to look at your private public land boundaries aerial imagery with 24k topos be able to use the maps offline And also use custom waypoints to be able to mark some of your key areas from home or on your phone. So if you want to check out the Hunt app, you can head over to onxmaps.com. And if you use the coupon code EMW, that'll save yourself 20% off of both the premium and elite memberships. So check that out at onxmaps.com. And Maven Optics. So Maven was born out of wanting to solve a problem. Out of the idea that they can develop a product with no compromising quality and no compromising performance without the big box store markup. So that's kind of the business model they took with their direct-to-consumer model. And one of the cool things Maven's able to do with this is be able to allow you to have to build complete custom optics for you, you can change everything from the frames, the bodies, the any of the components to different colors, camouflage patterns, whatever that might be, and on top of already getting with the highest quality glass and internal products. So if you head over to mavenbuilt.com, you can go on their, their build app there and build up your dream optics. See if you're interested in it, and if you are, on any full-price optics orders, use the coupon code EASTMEETSWEST-GIFT, and you get yourself a free gift with any of those optics orders. And the University of Elk Hunting. So, Corey Jacobson, Elk 101, have put together the, the most comprehensive and complete resource for increasing your elk hunting knowledge, your confidence, and success. So in addition to just having full access to this entire course for one year, you'll have access to the University of Elk Hunting mobile app, which puts all that same content that you get from the online course right in the palm of your hand anytime, anywhere, with or without internet or cellular connection. So it's really cool, especially if it's your first time out West and you get a bull on the ground and you're like, well, I don't know what to do to be able to cut this thing up. I'd forget how to, I watched the videos on quartering them, but I forget you can watch those videos, download them ahead of time and be able to check that out. Plus any UEH members receive incredible discounts from any of the Elk 101 partners and including 15% off elk hunting gear in the Elk 101 store. So a whole lot of stuff that you'd normally get for ninety nine dollars a year, if you use the coupon code East Meets West, you can get that for seventy nine dollars, and the knowledge within that course is is something that that uh, I, I've been you know taking in for the last four years and has been a very big help in my own learning curve to be able to. Uh, be successful out west. So check that out, elk101.com, and click on the University of Elk Hunting, the online course. Check that out. And so I guess from the the standpoint of some news that I have here, the Elk Hunting film from my September Elk Hunt in Idaho is going to release here shortly. Uh, I would assume probably here in the next couple of weeks. Uh, it's going to be coming out. I did just release a, a little teaser video online. This is a short 1 minute uh video on my YouTube. So if you want to head over to my my YouTube channel is just Bo Martonic and you check it out the the video is called Appreciation and it's a little bit of a, you know, a teaser for the film that will be called Synergy and that'll be released like I said later this month. So Super pumped, Justin Mueller, who did all the photos and and video work on this trip. He did an excellent job on this film. I'm really excited to release that and be able to have everyone take a look at it. Um, as far as other news here, so I kind of wanted to share something that I learned this past year from hunting a new area in the mountains. So in Pennsylvania here, so I, I'd found this this point of this ridge that was, you know, overlooking uh, a big river bottom and up on this ridge, there was some, uh, some like a a pine thicket, some hemlock trees and everything else. And a little opening and on the edge of that opening on the edge of the thick pines, I'd found some beds with rubs leading out in every direction. And so I kind of assumed that it was buck bedding. And I set a camera up there in April And never went back to it until November. And what I learned, you know, I had, so I put the camera on, there was a scrape there. So I put it towards the scrape, but it was kind of overlooking this brushy field um, on the edge of the pine thicket. And I picked up so many bucks of all age structures from, you know, year and a half year olds all the way up to some really old deer. Using this all through velvet with no food out in front of it. And so all through velvet into early season daylight photos. I mean a lot of daylight photos and all the way through till I just checked the camera again here uh, a couple of weeks ago and even had some darn rifle season daylight. I mean, this spot is just overlooked. Um, it's, you know, it's a pretty good walk to get there. Um, for, I don't know close to two miles, something like that out and, out on this point and it's just it's a bomb spot it's it's extremely tough to hunt the, with the the wind i tried hunting it one day and i blew a buck out and i just I hunted way i hunted right over the beds and just the way that the wind worked in that spot i should have started back a little bit but anyway so for late season strategy i realized there were still some acorns on this ridge about 200 to 300 yards away from this bedding point So I uh, went back in and scouted it Uh, a couple weeks ago. And when there was snow, I found some fresh beds, looked like a lot of doe beds, maybe one buck bed that was over the hill a little bit and saw where they were coming up and feeding. So I I went in this past Saturday, which was the only day I've been able to hunt so far in the late season. And I took my saddle in, I climbed up on this big boulder and then climbed up into an oak tree you know, looking at, there was, I was kind of on the first bench down over the side of the hill. And as it funneled out to this, you know, this little um, knob basically where there was some acorns on the ground and I saw 12 deer, no bucks. uh, They were all does that I could tell. I don't think any of them were bucks that lost their antlers already, but it was just really interesting to be able to learn that not every point's like that not every spot and it's it's really tough to be able to explain to say okay every feature that looks like this is going to be this way because that's not the case and that's where you know trail cameras can help you out and just boots on the ground scouting in the spring it's just huge for being able to you know check that out but i do plan on uh, i think on new year's day here we're getting a cold front end Got to see what the dominant wind's going to be to see kind of how they're going to bet on this point and go in again and see if I, if any of the bucks get up moving with the cold weather coming in. So that's that's kind of my my plan here going forward in late season. Only a few more days that I'm able to hunt, but uh, really looking forward to that. So in regards to all of this this and, and Pennsylvania and the rest of the Appalachian region here, you know... Uh, One of the places I've learned a lot of information over the years is through the Penn State Deer Forest Study. And so I brought Dwayne Diefenbach on the podcast here today to be able to talk about that study and some of the findings they found with it. Really interesting stuff. I mean, this podcast, you know, it gets in a lot of detail, but just scratches the surface to some of their studies with collaring deer and there's a lot of free information out there to be able to learn about it uh i do apologize that there is a sound quality issue on this episode uh must have been some sort of a bad connection between Dwayne and i and i don't like putting out podcasts that don't have the best quality i i apologize for that but there's so much good information in here i i wanted to make sure that i got it out there so please forgive me on that. Don't get mad. Don't be sending me hateful messages. If you do then whatever, probably deserve it for something else. So, um, but anyways, uh, I guess here it's, you know, new year's Eve and want to wish everyone a happy new year and, you know, just good luck with everything. Hopefully you spent the holidays, you know, with your families and friends and everything else here. And it's another year, another year to you know chase your dreams and do whatever makes you happy. So I guess we'll uh, jump on the, this episode here with Dwayne Diefenbach. All right, welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt Podcast. And tonight I'm joined on the line by Dwayne Diefenbach. Dwayne, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you. Pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm glad to have you on and and finally get to talk to you here. Uh you've been on my my list of people I've been wanting to talk to for a while and I had someone that put us in contact so I'm I'm extremely excited about that to get to talk to you a little bit.
1: Well, it uh well, like I said, I'm glad to be here. It should be fun.
0: Yeah. For sure. So, Dwayne, let's get, to get started here. Um, would you mind giving a little bit of a background of yourself, um, what you do for work and, you know, kind of the reason that, that I'm having you on here?
1: Okay. Well, um, I, uh, I'm i the leader of the Pennsylvania Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Research Unit at Penn State. I'm actually um, uh, an employee of the U.S. Geological Survey, and it sounds kind of strange, but um, the co-op units—they're associated. There's 40 of them across the country, and they're associated with <clears throat> the major land grant institutions, uh, universities in each state. And uh, they are cooperative uh, in which um, the U.S. Geological Survey provides employees, um, usually about three scientists, and the university, of course, provides a office space and administrative support, and the State Wildlife Agency um, provides um, research support. And so my job, um, and and I guess I should back up before me, the co-op unit at Penn State has been there since 1938, and the job of co-op unit scientists is to... Uh, primarily work with the State Wildlife Agency, or in Pennsylvania we have the Fish and Boat Commission as well, um, to collaborate with them on wildlife research problems. And I started um, in my job there at Penn State in 1999, and in 2000 um, we started some research on fawn survival, and that's just progressed into a series of increasingly complex project over the last 20 years um, studying whitetail deer and so that's why that's where that's how I got where I am today.
0: <laughs> okay and so I've, I've you know been I guess a student from the side of the reading your studies now for quite a few years I'd, I'd say maybe 2014-15 somewhere in that range. Uh, does that sound correct? When did you uh, start the, the deer forest study?
1: Yeah. Um, actually it started in 2013, late 2013, really didn't get rolling until
0: 2014. Okay. That makes sense. And, and it's, it's, uh, something that I've been, you know, extremely interested in in reading, especially coming from, you know, I'm from North Central Pennsylvania, Northwestern, uh, PA here and growing up to, you, you don't, read a whole lot about how the, these deer act and, and live within the, the forest that we have here. You know, it's, it's not your typical, when you think of whitetail hunting and what you see in the media and stuff, you think of the Midwest and farm country and everything. So that was, you know, increasingly interesting to me to be able to read some of these studies. And it really helped, you know, me as a, a hunter throughout the years. So if you could talk a little bit about the, the study. And, you know, kind of what your goals and stuff for that is.
1: Sure. So the current study, we call it the deer forest study. Um, I guess because that rolls off the tongue better. But really it should be um, the forest deer study. Uh, because really we're a little more interested in understanding um, forests um, and several factors that influence um, forest vegetation conditions. Of course, one of those factors are deer. And and actually, there's a whole host of factors. I mean, we could talk about insects, soils, precipitation, um, acid deposition, uh, diseases, um, insect outbreaks. There's so many things that affect our forests, but, um, you know, we don't have... Unlimited funds and, and when we started the project, we said, well, we need to identify two or three key factors that we think are influencing our forests. And of course, deer is one of, one of the important ones. Um, and we also decided to look at soil conditions and also competing vegetation. And by that, I mean vegetation like mountain laurel or fern that if they become super abundant, they can potentially impede um, the growth of other types of vegetations like tree seedlings or forest herbs and other things like that. So, so again, the objective here is um, really to look at the interaction of soils, deer browse, and competing vegetation and how those three factors influence our forests. There's been a lot of research over the years, and we know that when you have a lot of deer, they can eat a lot of vegetation and have an impact. We also know that soils are important, and we also know that competing vegetation is important. But what, what we really needed to do um, was look at how those three factors interact. So, for example, if you have really poor soil conditions, what kind of do deer have a greater impact under those conditions than if we have um, good soil conditions? So, um, yeah, I'm getting a little down into the weeds here, no <laughs> pun intended. Um, really, like I said, the study is really about the forests, um, but in order to study that, those conditions, we need to study deer. And as a result, we've learned a whole lot about deer that I think has been really fascinating and interesting to especially deer hunters um because of some of the new technology that we have available to us that we really didn't even have 10 years ago.
0: Okay, and so within that when you started, you know, studying the the deer and, you know, their correlation to the the forest, what um what were some of the things that you started looking at? Um, I, I guess first let me back up and say, you know, what areas are are you looking at? Can you can kind of describe the 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 areas that you're doing this research at?
1: Yeah. So one of the things that's a little bit different about this study, um, actually, I would say it's it's rather groundbreaking, is that we have four study areas. Each of those studies is probably well. I can tell you is. 25 to 40 square miles. So they're really large. They're on our um, state forest lands. So they're essentially contiguous tracts of, of forest. And we have two study areas up in northern north central Pennsylvania in Potter County on the Susquehannock State Forest. And we have two other study areas in central Pennsylvania just south of State College, where Penn State University is located, um, on the Roth Forest and Bald Eagle State Forest. Um, And so, what we're trying to do is, at a large scale, um, manipulate deer populations through deer hunt and and monitor um, changes in vegetation um, in response to those changes in deer density. Yeah, and so there's a host of factors. The research is supported by both the Game Commission and the Bureau of Forestry um, because there are the both agencies are very interested in in uh, in in the objectives that we have for this project, like I described earlier.
0: Okay, Um, so what were some of the some of the the techniques that you're using to study uh the deer and you know how they they were interacting to you know meet your objectives there
1: right so um you know, on the deer side of things um we have we're using we're capturing deer and we fit them with um with these satellite g p s collars. And so this is, uh, this technology really has come a long way because of um, cell phones. And um, basically, we've got better electronics um, and that can be powered by, you know, smaller batteries. And so basically, these radio collars are essentially a GPS unit that hangs around the neck of the deer. And then that GPS unit can collect data, um, however we program it, and transmit the locations of the animal via satellite um, to our you know, computers, to my desktop. Um, and, in fact, we can communicate with those callers. We can tell them, start collecting a location every half hour or even every 10 minutes if we wanted to. Um, essentially, with the... With the fixes that we get in the course of a year, we might get about two to 3,000 locations on a given deer, and collars can last about three years. Okay. Um. So, so with those collars, you know, we get intensive information on their movements that really wasn't available to us 10 years ago, and we almost get it in real time because the satellite transmits those locations to us. Um, on, the, on the vegetation side of things, uh, we have uh, hundreds of permanent plots um, spread out through the state forest where we're measuring vegetation conditions, primarily understory vegetation, um, such as tree seedlings and and a variety of herbaceous species that deer... In particular, the ones that deer like to eat—a um, lot of plants from the lily family—are, in fact, in the springtime when a female is getting ready to give birth or lactating, um, those herbs can represent, you know, ninety percent of a deer's diet. So they're really important to deer. So we're, you know, trying to understand, uh, you know, how deer affect those plants.
0: Okay. And um, so through some of those studies and everything, what were some of the interesting things that you've learned through that or what, um, you know, as far as between the, the correlation with the deer and also the vegetation in those different areas?
1: Well, so we're, when you look at that interaction between deer and vegetation and soils, in fact, um, if the reason why this project was started in, in 2013, and is still going on because we need a lot of time. You know, deer deer cycle on an annual basis and, you know, a generation might be 7 to 10 years Um, but when you talk about a generation of a forest, you're talking like 80 years. Um, So, this really needs to be a long-term study and we're just beginning to see some changes in our vegetation in response to some of the manipulations we're trying to do um, but um, but regardless we we have found some interesting things and I'll I guess I'll first start out with some of the deer work is um, you know really it's sort of peripheral to the project but it's been interesting especially if you're a deer hunter um, to To see some of the movements of these deer Um, during the rut, um, you know, these bucks go from maybe moving about 20 to 25 miles over the course of a month to over 100 miles um, to just during that four weeks of the key rut period. Um, We also, the response, um, you know, a lot of people have known that Everyone who's hunted deer in Pennsylvania knows that during the rifle season, they just seem to disappear, and some of our research has provided some insights into that, Um, and we can talk a little bit more about that later. On the vegetation side of things, um, we really don't know a lot about some of these important herbaceous plants that deer eat in the springtime. You know, as I mentioned, things like Canada Mayflower is a small lily. Um, it's it's more abundant in, in northern Pennsylvania, in our northern hardwood stands. Um, you know, as I mentioned, that might represent 90% of their diet might be consumed by types of plants in the springtime. And what we found is that um, that soil conditions are or have play a big part in, in these plants. Um, in fact, it may be as important or more important than deer at this point. Um, we know over the past 30 years that the pH of our soils has declined um, in, in Pennsylvania uh, on average about a, a, a unit of pH. So a pH value of seven is neutral. Less than 7 is acidic, and greater than 7 is, of course, alkaline or basic. And um, once you get below about 5.3 pH, um, plants are, once you get down to about in the 5, um, some plants are being affected by aluminum toxicity because in our soils, Usually when you're above a pH of, oh, five and a half or six, the major nutrients that cycle are things like calcium and magnesium and phosphorus, which everyone, you know, who's ever gardened or been a farmer knows that that's really important to growing plants. And then once you drop down below about 5.3 or 5.5, there's no more calcium in the soil to cycle. And so other things start to cycle, like, and usually metals like aluminum or manganese, and, and those metals are toxic to plants. And so what we found on our study area is that almost all the pHs of the soil samples collected are below 5.3, which means practically all the plants are suffering some level of aluminum toxicity. And that means bad things for both plants and deer, um, because as I mentioned, you know, they're not independent one another. The deer depend on the plants to you know reproduce and grow, and if the plants can't grow that well, that means that the forest can support fewer deer. So um, we're seeing what we're seeing is real evidence of um, impairment of our forests and ability to support white-tailed deer uh because of acid deposition over the past, you know, 100 150 years.
0: Okay, and what what causes that acid deposition?
1: Well, um it's from our burning of fossil fuels primarily. Um that creates sulfates and nitrates that get uh, taken up into the atmosphere. Um, that interacts with the sun to create um, sulfuric and nitric acids that, that come down in the rain. And those acids um, basically are leaching the calcium and the magnesium and the phosphorus from our, um, from our forest soils. Now, granted, air conditions and, and acid deposition is a lot less than it was even 10 or 15 years ago, but that damage has been done and, you know, we're going to be living with that problem for, for decades in the future.
0: Okay. Uh, one, one question I have, and maybe you'll be able to kind of help me connect the dots here is, is I, I remember when I was younger and even before I started hunting when deer numbers in, in this part of the state and, um, in in Northern Pennsylvania seemed to be a lot higher and there was a lot more deer, but they were, there were smaller deer. It seemed like from a body size uh, standpoint and that what, what we're seeing now is a lot bigger, healthier deer, but lower deer numbers. Does that have to do with that, that correlation there?
1: Um, a little bit. And it's part of, actually it's part of the motivation for me to do this research. If I've told people before that if you had asked me when I started doing deer research at the turn of the last century, you know, in 2000, what's the major problem facing our forests, I would have said too many deer and the inability of of our forests to support the number of deer that we have. But in the early 2000s, when the Game Commission implemented antler point restrictions and increased antlerless deer, we reduced the population in Pennsylvania on average by about 23%. And so we've reduced deer numbers, and so today deer browsing is not the major problem from our forests. And the question for me is, but we still have problems in our forests, and foresters have problems regenerating you know, forests after they harvest timber the question is do we need fewer deer still or are there some other issues out there there's some is there some interaction effects and and so again that's getting back to the motivation for this research okay um is you know deer there are fewer deer in Pennsylvania than there were 20 years ago that was intentional and now the question you know that we're coming back to is how we're trying to fine-tune our ability to understand how many deer should be out there and what are some of the factors that are limiting our ability to manage deer.
0: Okay. Um. So, you know, within, you know, some of the, the well, you'd mentioned something about uh, the, the antler restrictions that were, you know, implemented, and I know that's a little bit of a, a different topic there, but I've read where you've talked about that a little bit. Um, do you want to kind of give some of your thoughts on on the antler restrictions and what that's done?
1: Well, you know, antler point restrictions, when they were implemented in Pennsylvania, the objective was to um, reduce the harvest rate on one-and-a-half year-old bucks and from about 80% down to 50%. And so that those, those bucks would then be alive, you know, as two and a half year olds. And the difference in antler size from a one and a half to a two and a half year old deer can be huge. And so the antler point restrictions in Pennsylvania, if you're in Pennsylvania, you know that in some parts of the state, it's four points on a side. And in other parts of the state, it's three points. And that just as relates to general quality of soil conditions, you get into Western PA, you know, on the Ohio border, um, those counties have better soils. Um, you know, 50% of the yearling bucks have at least four points. So hence the four point rule. And whereas in most of the rest of Pennsylvania, you um, 50% of yearling bucks have, you know, three points, at least three points on one side. So biologically, the regulations that were implemented um, worked. Um, we reduced the harvest rate on yearling bucks. Um, 90% of bucks that survive the hunting season are alive as two-and-a-half-year-olds. Um, and we also know from our research that about 60% of hunters antler point restrictions so from the standpoint of a biological management action they're successful and from the social side um they're also successful because a majority of hunters support them
0: yeah i mean and and again this is just from what i've seen from non-scientific side of uh side of the equation here is just the, the size of the deer and the age of the deer have definitely, you know, increased at when, you know, when I was younger, I, you didn't see, you know, deer that were three and a half years or older, um, you know, that would be, um, harvested that were, people were getting, you know, during the seasons and this, this past archery season, uh, Dwayne, my, and just in my immediate family, there was, there was one deer that my uncle had shot that that we're assuming you have to get the the actual results on that but is about eight years old based off of sheds and and trail camera photos and and three others that were at least five years old and that does not see that did not happen you know even 20 years ago and and just
1: right before aprs i mean uh a four and a half year old deer probably less than 1% of them um now you're talking probably 10% of the deer in Pennsylvania are four and a half years old of the antlered males um so yeah it, it uh you know so not only has it increased the survival rate of one and a half year old bucks but there's also uh, there's a lot of two and a half and older bucks that don't get harvested. And I think that's mostly because, um, you know, hunters are out there and you have to count the points before you can pull the trigger. And, and that might be just enough time for those bucks to get away. But we've not only have seen, you know, younger, the younger bucks survive, but the older bucks are living older as well. So even on our study areas, you know, our study areas, um, are current with the deer forest study, uh, four and a half, five and a half year old deer is not unusual mm-hmm. for a male. For a male that is.
0: Yeah. And do you see what, um, you know, some areas it seems like that they grow bigger antlers than others. And does that, I mean, I'm sure a lot of that has to do with the nutrition and everything, but do, what, what have you learned from that within the studies? Have you been able to correlate anything?
1: Well, our study areas are, you know, large tracts of contiguous forest, fairly poor soils. Um, but I can say when we were doing the research on on the effects of antler point restrictions and looking at antler sizes statewide, um, antler size is probably most strongly correlated with the general soil conditions. So our counties that have better soils have the larger deer. Um, if you look at if you look at the factors that influence antler size, the first factor is age. So the older a buck gets the bigger the antlers. The second factor is basically nutrition. And nutrition is driven primarily by Quality of the soil. Um, And then after that, way, way down the list is genetics. Um, People think, talk of, you know, there's lots of talk about genetics, but I can tell you that um, that is way down the list.
0: Okay. That, that makes sense is there is there a place that that you can find where the the soils are, are better in certain counties or however that would be split up
1: um, yeah I mean there are soil maps um, the natural um, the NRCS, um is a federal agency that um, handles a lot of the farm a lot of the farm bill and their responsible for monitoring soils and and crops, and there are soil maps for every single county in the country, um, and you know you could look at look at those soil maps to to see you know soils that are higher in calcium and magnesium um, would be you know more productive sites.
0: Okay. Um, from going back to when you were talking about radio collaring deer and learning from their movements, um, you, you know that you have some really cool uh, videos put together, basically of of all the the points where the radio collar was sending the signal to you, and be able to put that in a map and show where the deer have you know been moving throughout you know the entire year, and then even more specifically in the hunting season where those of us that are hunters, you know, really pay attention to. And so explain a little bit what you've learned by that, you know, are you seeing any sort of trends with their movements? Are they, you know, animal specific or what are you seeing there?
1: Well, you know, we have deer season start in October with archery and go through to mid November. And then, Right after Thanksgiving, um, we have our rifle season. And then um, after Christmas, we have a late archery and muzzle muzzleloader. Um, for the most part, the the archery and the late seasons have very little effect on movements, as far as I can tell. Um, but the rifle season, you know, where we have you know, half a million people pursuing white-tailed deer in the state over, you know, a 12-day season, um, we're seeing, uh, you see huge changes in their behavior. Um, deer home ranges on our study areas that, um, average about a square mile, um, during the rifle season, they average about 100 acres. So those deer really restrict their movements, and, um, and, and they also have, they found good hiding places. So between those two things, um, it makes it much more difficult for a hunter to encounter a deer because they move a lot less. Um, it's, not, it's not so much that they go nocturnal, Um, they're still most active in the morning and the evening, but the fact that their movements are so reduced, um, there's less chance for, you know, coming, interacting with a hunter. Um, and yeah, so that, you know, that's sort of in the general. Um, but then you look at movements of individual deer, they, a deer that survives, it survives because they found a place where they're not going to get disturbed. And, you know, I tell people, this is not deer thinking, Oh, where can I go and not be disturbed by hunters? It's more like they got lucky. Um, they were disturbed by hunters. They ran off and they ended up in a spot where they weren't bothered. And they remember that. And that's the spot they go back to. And so if you, you know, go on our website and the blog, and look at some of those movies. You can see that that these deer they don't leave their home range. Um, they go to some spot within their home range that um, that for whatever reason hunters are unlikely to go there. And usually those are spots high up on a ridge um, with a steep slopes, um, which obviously are very difficult to get to, and. And even if you can get to them, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to sneak up on a deer. And so those spots are you can just watch over the 12 days of the rifle season. It by four in the morning they run up to that spot, they lay down, they don't move until about ten or eleven in the morning. Then you might start to start to see movements um, in the afternoon and by late afternoon. They might be even back down by a road or something. Um, And they just repeat that behavior every single day. So it's been, you know, it's really interesting. Um, I guess that for me, being a hunter myself, um, I understand a little better why I don't see as many deer during rifle season. I'm not sure it makes me feel any better, but um, (laughs) I have an understanding why.
0: Yeah. Um, is there any, I mean, you, you're talking about, you know, on the, the ridges and, you know, some of those steep areas that are harder to get to, do you notice anything like with vegetation as far as where they're going to, are they going to, you know, thicker spots, um, or anything along those lines?
1: Well, unfortunately that's the million dollar question, um, that will take about a million dollars to figure out. <laughs> um, we don't. We don't have good maps of understory vegetation. Um, You know, I can tell you, you know, the the Bureau of Forestry has maps to say, well, this is, you know, an oak stand that was cut, you know, 20 years ago, or, you know, this is a northern hardwood stand that was cut 50 years ago. Um, But they don't have good data on... Well, whether this area is, you know, thick with mountain laurel or this area is open with fern. Um, so unfortunately, pe- you know, lots of people have asked me, you know, so what is it like? You know, what's the understory? And um, do they like this versus that? Or And I can't answer the question because I don't have the data.
0: Okay. That's, I understand that. And so... Going back, okay. So outside of rifle season, um, and you're looking at let's say into October, what are you seeing as far as their movements? Um, you know, and and as it gets into the rut, and specifically looking at at looking at bucks and their movement with what what you've learned from tracking these deer.
1: Um. Well, well, I've had some students looked at weather, that influences movements, and um, essentially it has very little effect. Um, So basically that means that just because it's raining out doesn't give you an excuse not to go hunting. (laughs) Um, uh, We've also unfortunately the other thing we don't know is food. You know, it would be really nice to know does this ridge have a you know, have a good mass crop of white oak acorns. And, you know, this area not have, you know, a lot of mast. And and so I have not and I cannot tie those movements to how deer are responding to food. Um, The only other thing I can say is that by the third, by the end of October, probably 20 to 25% of females have been bred so that last week in October, around the third week in October, the rut really starts to pick up. And, and then of course the rut peaks in the middle of November, around the 13th of November, um, by the 13th of November, half the females, um, are pregnant by that time. Um, so, so that so those movements during the rut, um, there's no pattern that I've been able to discern. Um, those those bucks are just crisscrossing their home range. In fact, their home range doubling or even quadrupling in size, and they're just walking twenty four seven back and forth across their home ranges, um, looking for females. Um, that are, you know, uh, in estrus. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of crazy to watch these guys go. Like I said, I mean, they're in, in 20 to 30 days, they're covering, you know, over a hundred miles. They're basically walking 24 hours a day, just searching for mates.
0: Okay. And with, um, with those movements, do you, do you see, I mean, I know you said they're kind of just going everywhere, but do you see, you know, any specific, like, they're following any terrain features or doing anything along those lines, different elevations?
1: Um, nope. <laughs> um, so, although, you know, I do have to say that in, in the past, um, We've, during the rut, we've really only gotten locations every three hours. So, you know, in three, you know, so like some of these guys are in the course of um, six to 12 hours, you know, they're covering, you know, multiple miles. And so only getting a location every three hours doesn't give you a lot of detail about their exact path. Um, this year we programmed the collars to get a location every hour. So we should get a little more detailed picture of their movements during the rut. Um, but basically, um, if you look at where a deer is every three hours, um, you really can't predict where he's going to be in the next three hours. Mm -hmm. Other than if you know, he's on one edge of his home range, you know he's going to be turning around and heading for another, in another direction. Um, but otherwise, there's, you know, at that interval, there's. I've never been able to see any type of pattern to their movements. Okay. Um, you no, know, they're they're covering their home range during that one month averages about two square miles, and some of those bucks have home ranges that are four square miles. Um, so I, yeah, I just, I have no idea how you, and have no, no inkling on how you would go to predict their movements, um, when they're covering that large of an area.
0: Yeah. And, and I'm sure a lot of that, you know, I mean, a lot of the does where they would be bedded at, you know, throughout the day might change based on the food year to year. I know this year in some of the areas I was hunting, uh, the acorn crop on the tops of the hills was not very good, and it seemed like they were the acorns were damaged, and and again I, I don't have the I don't, I don't know enough about it from a scientific side of things, but it seemed like they were almost rotted uh, early on, and the deer were lower on the as far as elevation went than they had been you know in the past as far as just a general um, from being in the in the woods hunting a lot and trail cameras and different things like that and that made it very tough to to kind of figure that out
1: yeah and in fact the you know the females their behavior is the opposite of males during the rut their home ranges actually shrink um uh, because you know if you're lost in the woods what do they tell you they tell you to stay put and so if the males are the ones running around looking for females, uh, it's going to be easier to find a female if she doesn't move. And so we actually see um, both males and females, like in September, would have a home range of about a square mile. And you'll actually see a decline in October and November in the female home range. And then, of course, the male home range just expand like I said, two to four times.
0: Okay. Um, and throughout your, you know, your three different study areas, th- is there anything that were the, the movements or, you know, some of the stuff that you found similar between those different places or were there a lot of differences?
1: Um, I can't say, you know, our southern study areas are in the Ridge and Valley region. Um, and the northern study areas are, you know, in the Allegheny Plateau, and essentially a very similar um, movements. Um, I, you know, I really can't say that um, that there's, you know, any characteristic that's strikingly different between the two areas. Of course, both that all of our study areas are. 95 percent forested so um Mm -hmm. they're they're similar in that respect
0: so i i I read a, a recent blog post that that you had put out here at the end of november that was titled the ultimate guide to hunting big woods deer and some of the some of the things that you had there were interesting to me and especially the ones that you had listed as far as what not to worry about And, you know, in regards to deer not going nocturnal and, you know, some of the, the, some of the other, um, things there, as far as where you'd, uh, you titled the second one werewolves where how deer don't howl at the full moon or any moon of that matter. Um, so I guess what you were saying there, as far as, uh, if you're not seeing much of a difference, whether it's a full moon or anything else.
1: Yeah, um, I actually had a, an undergraduate whose, you know, grandfather always told her that when it was a full moon, deer didn't move as much during the day. So she actually got our data and looked at that. Of course, we didn't. She didn't have. She didn't have hourly data for bucks. She was just able to look at it with females, but um, there statistically there was a difference. But the difference was so small. Like, if it's a moonlit night, they might walk, you know, twenty or thirty uh, yards less than during a you know uh, a dark night. So um, yeah, there's there's not from what we've seen with our deer, there's very little effect of the moon on their movements. I think the biggest thing is the fact that they just don't move as much, and so it almost seems like um, it seems like they go nocturnal. But if you know, we've I've done, written some blog posts and, and graphed some of that. That they, like I said earlier, they they still their peak movements are in the morning and the evening. It's just that their overall movements are so much less that um, you're less likely to see see deer moving.
0: Okay. And uh, what about some of the other, you know, common um, myths there? You were talking earlier um, about the the weather and that not affecting the movement. And so that's something that, you know, in my own mind, I've been trying to, you know, figure out where, you know, you always hear and, and I've always been told, you know, Colder weather uh, affects deer movement, and you know that's the best days to be out hunting. And what I've kind of thought about more, because I I've, I've been one of the ones that you know that wants to hunt. If I can pick a couple days off during the rut to hunt to get off work, I'm gonna pick a colder day. And and I always wondered if if it would be the same on those other days that I wasn't hunting or similar, um, but it was just that I was putting all my eggs in the basket of the days that I, you know, claimed the best.
1: Yeah. Um, I haven't, I really haven't been able to see any difference now during the rut. Um, the weather, there isn't anything that influences buck movements during the rut, except females that are in estrus. Um, they are just going 24 seven. Um, it doesn't matter with the moon, with the weather, um, uh, you know, even even extremely warm days, you know, in October, late October, even early November, we can get several days that are in the high 60s or even 70s. And, um, and that's, if there's females that are in estrus in an area, those bucks are going to be moving and looking for them. Um, I think I think, however, there is, you know, I've got lots of data and I'm looking at the averages and what, what hunters are experiencing are just one small area. And so they might see, you know, really reduced movements or not a lot of movement, you know, one year and then the next year they're going to see a lot of movement. And that's probably related more towards the variability in the number of females that are in estrus during that time period than it is related to any factor like um, weather or the moon or anything like that. Um, you know, the we looked at, at the um, birth dates of fawns over about seven years. And over those seven years, there was essentially no variation in the average date that a fawn was born. Um, So, so, you know, the breeding, on average, occurs the same time every year. But if you're hunting in one area, that could be different from one year to the next just because of, you know, the females and their breeding status.
0: Okay. Uh, and, uh, another interesting, uh, topic that, that I've read about in, in your blog and watching some of the, the videos put together there is when deer kind of, and I, I think there was a, sp- a specific one. I can't remember the number that you had assigned to it, but that would, would go, would leave in it's home range and go far away for no specific reason. And then that deer ended up dying in that place.
1: Yeah, that was a really strange one. Um probably our most famous deer. Um why he did that. So, you know, 95% of the deer um their home range looks like just a blob on the landscape, right? It's it's just a circle or an oval or some shape like that. Um and but we have documented a few deer um, both males and females that might shift their home range. Um, you know, there's one buck that we have for two or three years in a row. During the rut, he would move a couple of miles away, and that's where he would spend the breeding season. When the breeding season was done, he would go back to this other area. We had a female for several years in a row. We captured her in the wintertime on the state forest, and she traveled north um and spent the whole summer where i'm sure she gave birth to her fawns in this farmland and then at the end of the um you know at the end of the growing season she would travel back to that same area on the state forest and then again in the spring she'd leave um for the summer and um so we have a few examples of that um but that's really rare and then this one buck um that you were referring to was even more unusual movements in that we caught him and he he left probably spent 12 hours he left his home range went to this spot to the north northeast and came right back to his home range and for the next 2 years he never went back there and then, um, we found that he must have gotten in a fight with another buck and we think he was probably, uh, fatally injured in that event and he left his home range and went to that spot and, and that's where he died. Um, unfortunately he died in the middle of an ice storm and our crews could not get there for a couple of days. And the coyotes had, you know, scavenged the carcass. So we couldn't really determine, we couldn't determine the real cause of death. But we do have from movements um, right before he left his home range to go and die in that spot um, that he was for several hours was right with another buck in that same area. Um, So people have, you know, speculated why he would go to that spot we have no idea. Um, I have no explanation whatsoever, but it's just one of those things, you know, we've got, uh, radio collars around the neck. We know where these deer go, but we don't know why or, or how, you know, they make those decisions. Um, so that's just one of those mysteries. I think that, uh, that we won't be able to solve. We know what happened, but we don't know why.
0: Ah, that's interesting. It's, it's, I, that's one of the reasons I just, I really enjoy, you know, reading your studies and everything there. Cause it's just, it's so interesting what these deer do and, and being able to see the plotted movements and, and everything, because I mean, I've been able to, to hunt in, in a bunch of different places throughout the country and even in Canada. And I just never, I've never found a place that's like here. And in uh you know the the big woods you know mountainous regions of Pennsylvania where the the, the bucks and deer in general just act the way that they do
1: yeah it's um yeah, it's uh it's interesting and like i said you know this technology has given us an opportunity to look at animal movements in, in greater detail than than we've ever been able to before. I mean, I could have told you, you know, 20 years ago that a deer's home range was about a square mile. Um, but beyond that, I really couldn't tell you a whole lot because with the technology back then, I might get, oh, 50 to 100 locations in a year. Whereas, you know, today I can get 50 locations in a day and and that makes a huge difference in in understanding you know these deer movements
0: so dwayne what what are you you said that you know this deer forest study or the or the forest deer study is you know going to be a long term thing to really be able to see the effects and everything so are you going to continue kind of the same method going forward or is there anything new as far as goals with it, that as you're, you know, adapting and seeing different things, uh, I guess, what's the future state of the, the deer forest study?
1: Um, yeah, so we began in 2013, and we were initial, initially funded for four years, um, and the Game Commission and the Bureau of Forestry um, continued that funding for another three or four years, um, so really it's um it's sort of uh in a sense it's kind of operational at this point we We capture deer in the winter time um we go out and and visit our vegetation plots with with our field crews in the summer and collect vegetation and and basically just monitoring the response um, changes in deer numbers and Um, changes in in the vegetation conditions. And like I said, you know, vegetation, especially under a canopy of a mature forest, changes very slowly. Um, So it's going to take, you know, when we started this project, we knew it would take at least five, maybe 10 years before we would even start to begin to see changes in the vegetation and basically that's what's happened okay um so so you know and unfortunately you know vegetation trees grow slowly and and the most important thing you can have available to you to study them is time
0: okay that makes sense uh so Dwayne where where um or do you have anything else that uh, you would like to cover, or anything else from from this standpoint, and some of these topics that that you would like to dive into?
1: Um, I don't know. Um, you know the you know we've covered a lot here. Um, like I said, the a lot of what we've shared with hunters and the public is really um what would you call it incidental or serendipitous um because our objective for capturing and, and marking deer was really to um get a handle on deer numbers and um and but because of the technology that we have it's really provided a lot of insights into deer behavior Especially in response to hunting. Um, you know, the, one of the things we, like I said earlier, is that the harvest rates on our study areas are, are fairly low. Um, bucks are in the range of 15 to 20 percent. Um, and if you look statewide, it's probably closer to 40 to 60 percent, depending on the management unit. So these harvest rates in our study areas are really low, and as a result, um, in a lot of cases, we've had collars on deer for three years, and we've had to blow the collar off because the battery was about to fail um, instead of it being harvested and recovered you know, from, by a hunter. Um, and as a result, like I said, four and a half, five and a half, Year old bucks in our study areas in the Big Woods of Pennsylvania um, are no longer unusual.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's extremely interesting. Uh, so, Dwayne, where where can people find you know these studies at and everything else? If if you wouldn't mind you know giving some of that information so they can learn more and read the details of just you know the surface that that we covered here today.
1: Right. So. We have a website, um, if you go to ecosystems.psu.edu slash deer, um, that website is where, um, we have a blog, um, like, you know, going back to 2014, um, and those blog posts, um, cover a whole range of topics, um, over the, I uh, can't believe we've been writing it for that long, but we have. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, so uh, ecosystems.psu.edu slash
0: Okay. Well, Dwayne, you know, first of all, I w- I'd like to, you know, thank you again for coming on here and, and talking with me and, and to all the listeners here with you know, a majority of them coming from Pennsylvania and, you know, in a lot of the surrounding areas that I think that, you know, maybe in other areas of the the Appalachian range can learn from these studies and, and, you know, gain some, some knowledge from it. So I, I appreciate it and I'm subscribed to the, to the blog. I'd recommend that everyone does that to be able to get the updates when they come through because it is extremely helpful.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I, that I should have mentioned that if you go to our website, there's a place where you can click on and um, submit your email address, and then you'll get an email blast whenever we have a new blog post.
0: Yep, and I'm, I have the website actually pulled up here in front of me, and there's there's big blue letters there to so subscribe to the Deer Forest blog by email. Yep. So. Yep. All right, Dwayne. Well, I again appreciate you coming on here and everything, and and uh, I hope that you have a um, you know Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and Happy New Year.
1: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to to talk with you and and share a little bit about the about the research